The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in. I have a great uh, show for you today, and uh, I have Richard Conniff on uh, the show. Richard is a fabulous author. Uh, Many of you may have read his uh, articles in Smithsonian, National Geographic, uh, the New York Times, and he has just published a book called House of Lost Worlds, essentially the story of the the Peabody Museum at, uh, at Yale University, but as you will see, it is much more than a story of how a museum was birthed. It has uh, several, it has drama, it has tears, it has uh, excitement. Uh, you never, I bet by the end of the show, you will be surprised how exciting those early naturalists were. Uh, and I'm only half kidding. This is my absolute favorite, favorite subject in the whole world. Uh, as you know, uh, as my listeners know, I was trained as a scientist and was a natural history curator. I love this history, uh, but I think we can still continue to learn uh, about our craft and our business and how museums can support the public good in so many ways. So, Richard, uh, with that very brief and limited introduction, let me welcome you to the show. Thank you, Carol. Very nice to be here. Richard, would uh, you please just share your career path with with our audience? And uh, just because you are not technically a museum uh, uh, staff uh, person, if you would also, if I'd just be interested to know what your very first museum memory was. Well, so I, uh, I I don't have a traditional um, sort of naturalist background. Um, I wasn't the kind of kid who went out collecting butterflies or, or, or frogs uh, and, you know, uh, keeping those sort of things uh, to study. I, I, I was interested in lots of other things, um, but, but I didn't really get around to the natural world until I was in my mid-20s. And, and I was working as a writer, and a magazine asked me to write a story about mosquitoes. And as I read and talked to people about mosquitoes, I became really hooked on the bizarre uh, 
biological um, ad- adaptations of the proboscis, in particular the way they the way they cut into the skin and the way they they used anticoagulants and the way the, the little stylets there were designed to work with the veins and, and extract blood as efficiently as possible, and I just found it uh, amazingly fascinating. Um, but before then. You know, my only, I, I had a very limited science education, and I think that the, the thing that was most sort of influential was one great science teacher that I had in seventh grade named Dr. Kowalski, who gave us this assignment to go out and buy a live chicken, cook it for dinner, um, <laughs> remove all the meat, and then remove even more meat, and we didn't have the, the help of the kind of flesh-eating beetles that, that the museums sometimes use. Um, instead, uh, you know, we just picked and picked and picked at it. And then the, the real assignment was to reassemble the skeleton, um, which is not all that different from reassembling a skeleton of um, a Tyrannosaurus rex, just on a much smaller scale. And um, so... So yeah, that 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 was it. Um, it. My my first memory of of a museum was going to the um, American Museum of Natural History in New York, and and then I also have this other thing that's not exactly a museum experience, but a zoo experience. I went to the Staten Island Zoo as a kid when I was about eleven or twelve, and um, uh, I went to visit the veterinarian there and uh, was introduced to it. Uh, young chimpanzee, and as we were talking, that chimpanzee, um, it was it was really a small one, it, and it bit me uh, on the on, on the inside of my arm, and it was a minor, it barely broke the skin, but I like to think that it infected me with a natural history sort of monkeypox that had a long latency period and didn't really bloom until I was in my mid twenties. Sorry, think that's a, a long answer. That's a great answer. I, I'll ask my husband, but I don't think NIH is working on a vaccine for that quite yet. <laughs> yeah. So. Maybe that maybe that's a good thing. Those are those are those are great. How old were you when you went to the American Museum of Natural History? I was seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, my dad took me. Yeah, uh, those those uh, yeah, those those parents' introdu- introductions to museums. I my uh, my mother took me to the Field Museum in Chicago, and I still it's one of my most cherished childhood memories. So I so I understand. So, what motivated you to write this book? Well, so this it, 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 I I've known this museum from all of my adult life. Um, I visited it as an undergraduate. I took my children there repeatedly when they were growing up. But I don't think uh, that it really dawned on me how important this one particular museum has been to the history of science. I know it, 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 it didn't dawn on me. Um, so when, when the, the Yale University Press and the museum approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing this book, because they'd seen my last book called The Species Seekers, about the discovery of life in the animal world. So I didn't, I didn't really think there was a book in it. I didn't think that one museum had the kind of narrative arc that I needed for a book. Um, and, and so I kind of put them off, and um, I delayed for several months before I really started to get into it. And um, what got me hooked... I decided to write about one character named John Ostrom, a paleontologist from the 1960s and on up through into the century. Um, 
And I just thought, well, maybe John Ostrom's an interesting character, and if he is an interesting character, then maybe there's a book in it. And he was. Um, he, he was a great character who discovered, he, he was a very mild sort of man, described by one of his students as squeakingly honest, and very thorough in his, in his paleontological work, and, and therefore respected by almost everybody. And in the early 1960s, 1964, he was in Montana, uh, finishing up the field season, and he and an assistant were standing on a hillside, looking around, trying to figure out what they would do the following year when they looked down and they saw an enormous claw sticking out of the earth. And they went scrambling down the hillside and they broke out their pocket knives and, and, and started scratching away at the earth. I mean, they didn't have their real equipment with them. They'd all, they packed everything up. And um, they realized that they were onto something pretty amazing. And they came back the next year and for several years after that. And what they discovered was this creature called Deinonychus which was um, a dinosaur that defied all the ideas about, about dinosaurs of the mid-20th century. So back then, the idea was that uh, dinosaurs were swamp-bound, stupid, slow, just, just you know, dragging their tails on the, on the ground, literally, and um, not all that interesting. Even paleontologists weren't all that interested in them at that point. But as he looked at Deinonychus... Ostrom realized that this creature had um, the, the metabolism um, of birds or, or mammals, that it had the ability to move quickly, that it was agile, that it was, in fact, a ferocious predator. And so he developed the idea that dinosaurs weren't the plodding creatures that, that, that everybody imagined them to be, but, in fact, um, could be these... these um, really exciting, uh, fast um, uh, predators. And, 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 um, and so that was the beginning of the modern dinosaur renaissance. Um, and, you know, it, it was heresy when he first broke this idea in the late 1960s. He went to a meeting of the, uh, all the major paleontologists, and there were, there were cries of horror when he suggested that the dinosaurs might actually be very active and, and not at all plodding. Um, but because he was John Ostrom, um, he persuaded people. And that, 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 so that kind of hooked me, all of that. But the second part of the story that I really liked was that in 1970, Ostrom went to um, Europe to do a study of pterosaurs, um, uh, like pterodactyl. Um, and he was traveling around, uh, going from one place to another, uh, looking at specimens. And he went to this one museum in the Netherlands, and um, he was looking at this supposed pterosaur, and he held it up to the light by the window, and he turned it one way and the other, and he realized that he was seeing feathers, and that it wasn't a pterosaur at all. It was um, Archaeopteryx, the the uh, early bird from 160 million years ago. And at that point... It was the only, it was the, I think it would have been the fourth Archaeopteryx that was known in the world. And so um, it was a big deal. And he needed to take it back to New Haven to study it. And he had this crisis of conscience because if he told the director of the museum that it was just another pterosaur, then no problem. He could, he could take it back with him. But if he told him it was an Archaeopteryx, well, then suddenly it was a, a rare treasure and the museum might want to keep it. Um, to itself, and so 
John Ostrom being who he was, he blurted out the information. He told the director. He had no choice. He just said, this is, no. Anyway, and in that instant, the director snatched the specimen away from him and disappeared from the room. And uh, Ostrom was left in despair, uh, 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 having been deprived of what would have been a great thing for his work. And, um, but a few minutes later, the director of the museum came back with a shoebox wrapped in twine and handed it to him. And he said, you have made our museum famous. And he gave it to him to take back to New Haven. And um, so Ostrom left that day triumphant and full of, full of uh, dreams of very big things that I'll explain in a minute. Um, and uh, having spent the afternoon hard at work, he needed to stop at the, uh, the public restroom on the way home. And, um, and he left again, heading back to his hotel, and he suddenly realized he was empty-handed. <laughs> and, and that this precious specimen, um, he, he retreated as quickly as possible following his footsteps to the public restroom, and he left it on the sink in this public toilet, um, you know, for anybody to walk off with, but it was still there. So he grabbed it, he clutched it to his breast, retreated to his hotel, took it back to New Haven, and then spent studied it in detail, and what he found from comparing that Archaeopteryx to Benonychus was this distinct similarity in the wrist bones, and that enabled him to suggest that um, dinosaurs and, and, and birds were intimately connected, and it was the beginning of the modern idea that, that um, dinosaurs, or rather that birds are in fact living dinosaurs. So two amazingly big discoveries for the history of science from this one very quiet guy um, who had been at Yale when I was an undergraduate, but who I'd never heard of before. That, that's what hooked me. That, that is, that's a fabulous, fabulous story. I knew bits and pieces of that, of course, but, but not, the, uh, not, not the entire narrative. And I didn't know that he lost it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, 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 the student of, of Ostrom's who told me that story, um, he didn't um, want to, well, he didn't want me to publish that at first. Um, he thought it was a little embarrassing, but I thought it was just so wonderful and human and um, uh, that I worked on him a lot, and finally he, he agreed to, uh, to to let me publish it. Uh, you know, I, I'm so glad you did that. Uh, to me, um, one of the great things about, well, your writing is, is superb, and it is, it does read like a, a coherent story, but... It makes these, you know, men um, uh, who, you know, oftentimes we only get to see in sort of sepia uh, photographs, it, it does make them human. And I think that that is incredibly important uh, if we're going to encourage more people to become interested in science. Yes. I, I, and in fact, we had a long, lots of discussions about this. Um, uh, uh, there was a tendency of the Peabody to, the staff at the Peabody now, to, to send me photographs of these uh, characters from their history as grand old men. And I didn't want grand old men. I mean, I'm sorry, they are almost all men. But um, I, I, wanted, I wanted them in their young years when they were struggling and... Um, Oh, there was, a, there was a particular character named Addison Emery Verrill who had been a student of Louis Agassiz at Harvard. And he'd been so mad at Agassiz at one point for his oh, arrogant behavior that as he was going home, he, he 
who was attacked by what he said was a mad dog, and he, he actually kicked the dog. Um, and I wanted that young Addison Emery Verrill, the one who kicked the dog and was angry at Louis Agassiz, and not the one who was in the oil painting as the eminent old man. Yes. No, you're, you, are, you are so absolutely right. And, of course, unfortunately, the Orstrom uh, story also sent an entire generation of young graduate students out into the field thinking that, you know, all they had to do was sort of look, look on the horizon and they, too, would find a claw. Uh, <laughs> and, of course... <laughs> Of course, that, that first field season is the one that can sort of separate those who really are committed to the field uh, and those who are not, because it's, it's hot in, in yes. the West. <laughs> yes, I just went out to uh, Big Bend National Park uh, last oh, September to look for uh, pterosaurs, and we were only out there for three days, but um, uh, we found not a scrap of a pterosaur out there, and it was hot, and it was tiring, and um, I, I couldn't have anything close to the kind of patience that paleontologists bring to that work. Yes. Um, well, and I, 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 what I think is interesting today as well with, with uh, and we'll get back to, you know, science education later, but science really is changing, even in areas of paleontology, um, uh, vertebrate biology, all of the old ologies, and with the rise of computers and the amount of data that you can get and how quickly you can get information and the visualizations, it's almost we've lost not just the charm, we've lost the time to think. You know, when you were out in one of those field seasons, you had three months of collecting and then you had nine months of staring at it. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there is something to be said about uh, yeah, that development of patience. Maybe we're losing yes. some of that. I, on the other hand, uh, these museums, particularly the Peabody, but, but, but a lot of museums now are digitizing their collections and that means that a lot more people in a lot more places can look at at those specimens and and start to think about them at their own on their own time and at their own pace um, and so yeah well, we do move quickly and things are um, maybe not as good in some ways as they used to be but there's lots of lots of things that have improved as well very, very good point. And with that, we're going to take our first break. Uh, stay tuned. I guarantee you there are more stories uh, to be had. Uh, before we break, I want to remind everyone that the book House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties, and the Story of Life on Earth, uh, Yale University Press, is available. It's a fabulous book. Uh, so I recommend everyone uh, get a copy, even if you're not all that interested in natural history. It's, it's an absolutely fabulous read. Uh, so we will be back in a moment. Uh, thank you for listening. This is Carol Vossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. 
CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Richard Conniff, who is the author of House of Lost Worlds. Uh, It is essentially the story, the history of the Peabody uh, Museum of Natural History at at Yale University in New Haven. And... uh, I, if you were not able to join us for this first segment, you will want to go back and listen to that uh, and the wonderful story about John Orstrom and uh, his his uh, discovery that really changed the face of paleontology and uh, started the beginning of how we look at dinosaurs uh, and the re- relationship between dinosaurs and birds today. So um, you know, make make sure that that you listen uh, to to that and now uh, Richard I'd like to shift gears a little bit we'll get back to some fun stories and but one of the things I found so fascinating uh, at the beginning of the book was really sort of the the genesis of the museum itself and it was not at all what I ex- expected or assumed so could you please sort of um, clue us into that you know it almost reminded me of that sort of chicken egg uh, 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 analog of what came first, the collection or the museum? Well, so in this case, clearly the collection came first, and it came first in, in the, uh, largely through the work of two characters. One of them was Benjamin Silliman, who was a really big figure in, in science education in North America in the early 20, in the early 19th century. And the other was um, his student um, and son-in-law, actually, uh, James um, um, James Dwight Dana, a geologist primarily, but also a great naturalist. And um, I didn't know anything about either of these characters either. I really am embarrassed how ignorant I was because I was a student as an undergraduate at Yale in Silliman College, and to me, Silliman was just a name. But but Silliman, Silliman also started out uh, not intending to be a scientist. He started out intending to be a lawyer, and he was roped into science by the president of Yale, who wanted somebody who was a devoted uh, religious um, person, uh, you know, conforming to the expectations of that time. 
and um, Silliman, Silliman was the man. Silliman um, thought um, Yale was a temple of prayer. Uh, uh, that's a direct quote. And um, so he reluctantly began to, to, to study science, chemistry in particular, and then geology. Um, but he fell into it uh, hard and, um, and um, became quite a, a good scientific uh, lecturer and, and a teacher and inspired a whole generation of science educators who went out from Yale to, to, to found other schools like Johns Hopkins and um, the Rensselaer, I think it's Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, among others. And his great, um, his great find, really, uh, was uh, in 1807 when this um, light came blazing across the sky of western Connecticut um, with these loud and distinct reports like cannon fire. And it was a meteorite uh, that landed in Weston, and he went out there to find out about it and to describe um, the the event and published about it. And um, and eventually, through a uh, another collector, he was able to obtain a 36-pound chunk of this uh, meteorite and put it in the museum. It's still there. Um, and it is, this became a big deal uh, in North America. Um, and it attracted the attention of President Thomas Jefferson, no less, um, who who was disbelieving that that massive rocks could be falling from the sky. He said, supposedly said that it was easier to believe that two Yankee professors uh, could lie than to admit that stones could fall from heaven, and and that was taken to mean Silliman and uh, another colleague of his who had accompanied him on the on this expedition to Weston, um, and. Um, it turned out that that story uh, that 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 Jefferson was actually referring to two completely different professors, but somehow the story became associated with um, with with Suleiman and stuck with him up until well until this book really, and uh, until the work of a an archivist at 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 the Peabody named Barbara Narendra who looked into it and found that it wasn't it wasn't Suleiman at all uh, but but somebody else, um, and Jefferson of course was entirely aware of meteorites and and he was the president of the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia and you know he knew his science um, so in any case um, Suleiman was one part of it. The other part of the story was his student, uh, James Dwight Dana. And he was a great character because, uh, first of all, he was a workaholic who produced the standard text on mineralogy for the day. In fact, he produced books that are still used to teach mineralogy uh, now. And um, at the age of 24, I think it was, he joined a round-the-world expedition, the U.S. Exploring Expedition, um, the first great American scientific um, uh, adventure, uh, uh, scientific expedition. And they traveled around the world for four years at enormous peril. Um, and basically, you know, he traveled the same, the same path that, uh, uh, that, that Darwin had traveled a few years earlier, and he... And he Dealt with some of the same questions, like uh, the, the volcanoes and 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 coral reefs and and the origin of Pacific Island atolls and so on. And um, he came back with a great um, collection of specimens. The the expedition brought back uh, a lot of specimens, and that led in the 1840s to the creation of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington D.C. But it led Dana to want to create a museum at Yale, 
um, because a lot of the specimens from the USXX, as it was known, um, were lost because of bureaucratic um, bungling and because of oh, kind of the, the captain of the expedition, his his personal need to sort of hold on to all the glory. Anyway, Dana wanted a museum where things could be preserved in perpetuity and in the proper conditions. And so from the 1850s onward, he was really desperately seeking to create a museum at Yale. And help finally arrived in the form of a freshman at Yale named Othniel Charles Marsh, O.C. Marsh, um, who was interested in paleontology interested in mineralogy and interested in the collection of anthropological specimens. And uh, he became a student of Dana's. And the the great thing about Marsh, um, in addition to his interest in science, was that he was the nephew of the richest man in the world, George Peabody, who was a London merchant banker. And over the next few years, uh, as a, an undergraduate and then as a graduate student, and, and, and as a student traveling around to, to, to study at different institutions in Europe, Marsh worked on and wooed his uncle and, and interested him in science. Peabody was already deeply interested in education and in supporting educational institutions because he had no education himself, and he was acutely self-conscious of that. Um, but in any case, Marsh got him to be interested not just in science, but in not just in education, but in science education in particular, and that led to the donation that created the um, Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History in 1866. Well, you know, one of the things that I I wasn't quite clear about, and and I think maybe I was was reading into it uh, a bit. So the it, but it sounds to me as if this the desire to do this create this museum really had a dual purpose which was not true of all natural history museums or collections and it was as you said to preserve the material so that it could be further studied by researchers by the university but it but it had a true commitment to public science education is that correct Yes, uh, I think that developed more um, uh, later in the in the nineteenth century. But yeah, from the beginnings, first of all, it was always an educational institution primarily, that is um, to serve uh, the, the Yale student community. Um, but it was also open to the to the to anybody who wanted to visit, and and a great many people, dignitaries from all over the place, came to Yale to see the mineral, mineral the mineral collection. Basically, that was the huge attraction back then. Um, and um, and Marsh made it very quickly um, a a place to see some of the best um, paleontological specimens in the world as well. Um, so um, y- your listeners know who T. Um, H. Uh, um, Huxley was, um, Darwin's bulldog, um, who was making the case for evolution um, in the aftermath of on the origin of species and. Um, when he needed to to find transitional species showing the the evolution from one species to another, the place he needed to go was the Peabody Museum at Yale. This was in the mid eighteen seventies, and he needed to go there to see the specimens that O. C. Marsh had gathered on a series of expeditions in the American West, and um, in particular, he wanted to see 
horse specimens because Marsh was originally interested not so much in dinosaurs but in um, but in early mammals, and he collected a, a huge series of horse specimens from 50 million years ago on up. And um, so Huxley came there, and they spent a week in August in New Haven uh, prowling through the collection, and, and Huxley would say, well, you know, I need to see this species or that species or something that does this or that. And whatever he asked for, Marsh would call an assistant and say, get me uh, specimen X and um, and." Bingo! He would present it to him, and so Huxley thought that 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 Marsh was a miracle worker, and um, and what he saw in New Haven completely changed his ideas about the evolution of the horse. And together they constructed this kind of diagram about horse evolution, going from a horse with um, five toes to four toes to three toes to the modern uh, single hoof, and um, and that diagram became kind of the essential diagram of, of evolution in textbooks um, everywhere for much of the next uh, century. Yes, you know, that was one of the things that really, uh, I don't want to say, well, it surprised me is I had so many of those illustrations that in fact have continued to be replicated in textbooks uh, today uh, actually came not only from illustrations that originated at the Peabody but also the exhibits and I'm thinking of the one uh, in which they have the skeletons of the various uh, hominids uh, gorilla and then and then to man and of course that uh, that then led to a series of illustrations that then have caused all sorts of confusion in terms of the relationship between uh, uh, um, hominids and, and humans. But I didn't, until I saw this photograph, I didn't realize that there was an actual display of these yes. skeletons. Yep, in the evolution section of the Peabody in the early 20th century into the mid-20th century, there was this lineup of of various primates leading from something pretty primitive-looking on up to, you know, the modern human. And, and it became the inspiration for an artist named uh, Rudy Zellinger, who drew in the, in the 1960s that original lineup for a time-life book showing um, uh, that, that same sort of evolutionary progression from some primitive-looking primate up to humans, and that has become a meme, one of the most parodied illustrations, one of the best-known illustrations in, in really the history of science, and um, so you'll now see um, oh, an, an illustration starting with an early primate and then progressing, and at the end it starts to deteriorate again, and you have um, a human bending over looking at his iPhone, um, or you have a human at the end uh, that looks like, uh, well, it is Homer Simpson, or you have a human bent over his computer, and you have all these parodies of that thing that, that, that exist, and they all go back to that, that display that used to exist at the Peabody Museum. And, and they all, by the way, communicate a false idea about evolution, which is that it's progressive and that it's linear. And um, that, that, that's, of course, not true. 
Uh, uh, correct. Um, and uh, on the other hand, I think that uh, I, I doubt that any exhibit designer or uh, uh, taxidermist or preparator in, in ever imagined that uh, a single exhibit that they put up would have that kind of, you know, life. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's, I, you know, I, certainly I, not today. <laughs> it's pretty shocking uh, what an extensive life these things have had and, and how influential they've been. Yes, and and it, and it was a. I mean, it's a minor point in your book, but it was one that I wanted to to bring up as an exhibit developer. Uh, it really resonated with me that how visual story, you know, what we call visual storytelling, having the objects and arranging them in a in a certain way, whether it's a diorama or a line or just stuck out in the middle somewhere uh, in a gallery has a significant effect, more than lectures, more than the discussions, more than than almost anything else. And I think it shows the power of uh, museums uh, to do a, a form of education that uh, nothing else can do. You know, the other thing, though, that museums do is they preserve the specimens for other people to look at and think about in, in different ways. And so the interesting thing about those horse uh, fossils that O.C. Marsh collected and that gave us that linear and progressive illustration, of, uh, the illustration uh, 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 that illustration, is that another scientist later went back and uh, he was a student at the Peabody. His name was George Gaylord Simpson, and he studied all the same stuff. And he wrote about it beautifully, but he also came to a very different conclusion about how evolution worked. Um, he described it as more of a, a, a branching, bushy kind of thing rather than a linear, uh, progressive evolution. And um, his work with those specimens and later his work at the American Museum of Natural History led him to these ideas about evolution and uh, that brought together paleontology, evolution, and genetics in the grand synthesis of, of, of uh, science of the mid-20th century. So, you know, O.C. Marsh's uh, work in the field in the 1870s um, really continued to reverberate through science for long after he was dead. Still does to this day. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm, I am glad you brought that up. And because there, there are... Uh, yeah, certainly in the last uh, 20, 30, well, actually since the, much longer than that, since the uh, develop, uh, identification of DNA as the hereditary structure, uh, I mean, certainly when I was a curator, there was a lot of discussion that we didn't need the collections anymore, uh, yes. that we would learn everything that we could possibly learn or want to learn uh, through uh, DNA analysis, and I, I think... Uh, uh, over the last 20 years in particular, we've learned that you have to go back to the original material. And, and it's it's like uh, I mean, throwing away collections, uh, natural history collections, is like throwing away uh, primary data or primary yes. manuscripts. Uh, and that uh, we need to do a stronger job, I think, a clearer job of communicating the value of these materials and, and answering, you know, what is an obvious question of why do you have to have so many? Why do you have to have so many bones? Why do you have to have so many birds? Uh, be, and uh, your book does such a fabulous job 
job, I think, of uh, explaining that and, uh, and, and using these wonderful examples uh, to show how s- uh, scientific, scientific uh, uh, investigation continues to revolve and refine and sometimes change everything that we thought of before, and that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, and and all those molecular scientists of the 1960s and 1970s who wanted to throw out all the specimens then and basically wanted to throw out all the traditional natural history uh, as if it were, um, you know, just a relic of the 19th century, they've all come around now, and um, and they realize that, that uh, the molecular and the paleontological, uh, uh, that these are all... Uh, the, uh, different parts of the same sort of spectrum and that you need it all to make sense of the world. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and thank goodness for that. So uh, we're going to take our second break and when we come back, uh, more stories from Richard Conniff and uh, in the development of his book, House of Lost Worlds, Dinosaurs, Dynasties and the Story of Life on Earth. It was just recently published and I know it's available through your very favorite bookstore and uh, your electronic bookstore, Amazon as well. So do do pick up a copy. It is It's clearly a fabulous read. Uh, I also want to take this opportunity to thank my friend and former guest on the show, Richard Kissel, who himself is an author of Dinosaurs and Dioramas. Uh, Richard was on the show uh, uh, about a year, year and a half ago, talking about uh, his book and uh, became a, a supporter of Museum Life. And it was through Richard that I was able to meet this Richard and bring him to you. So I just, it shows how fabulous and how proud I am of the network that uh, is being built uh, with you listeners and with all of my guests. So uh, thank you again, Richard and Richard. Uh, We will be back in a moment, so stay tuned. There's uh, one more segment to go. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. We'll be back in a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. 
to reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. I am here with Richard Conniff, and we've been talking today about the history of the Peabody Museum of Natural History in um, at, at uh, Yale University, uh, and that is in a wonderful read uh, Richard wrote uh, called The House of Lost Worlds. And uh, Richard, I, I don't want to let this discussion go by without uh, acknowledging uh, what you acknowledged in your your introduction that uh, this is a fabulous story and but it is a story of primarily white men uh, it is a privileged story it's the reality uh, but one of the things that you did do in in, in some sidebars uh, and I'm sure you had to uh, really look for them but there are women in the museum. Uh, I did not know about Grace Pickford, uh, but she reminds me so much of many of the other uh, women that I've met um, who are my predecessors in the museum world. And like Grace, so many of them were in invertebrate biology. I found that very interesting. Yep, and that's true of, of all of the women that I found to write about at the Peabody, with one exception, I should say, and that's a recent one. Uh, a woman named Allison Richard uh, was a lemur researcher, is a lemur researcher, who worked in Madagascar, and she became the first uh, female director of the Peabody Museum in the 1990s, and that uh, became the springboard for her to become the first, I think, the first uh, woman vice chancellor of the uh, University of Cambridge in England. Uh, so... Um, with that exception, though, yeah, invertebrates, all invertebrates. Um, and, uh, no, go ahead. Uh, well, and, and, and getting into the museum, uh, getting a job at the museum, um, getting paid for a job at the museum uh, was a major struggle for any woman. And in the case of Grace Pickford in the early 20th century, the 1920s, um, she was only allowed in uh, to, to work there because she was married to someone who had become uh, a man who had become part of the Yale faculty um, named George Evelyn Hutchinson, uh, who, who was, as it turned out later, the, the, the founder of the modern science of ecology. And she, uh, Grace, um, became a researcher on um, basically the endocrine function of fish um, and also of different kind of, of invertebrates. Um, and um, she never really got... Um, the kind of promotion that she should have gotten. She was uh, undertitled uh, throughout her career. Yale only made her a professor uh, 38 years after she started to work there. Uh, at the end of her, of her working life, she was in her late 60s, I think, at that point. And um, it only did it because Yale in 1969 became co-ed, and they needed to get some some women faculty um, and... Um, and Grace Pickford was there, and she was in an, a National Science Foundation grantee, and she had all the kind of credibility that she needed. Um, so Yale finally offered her a full professorship, um, but it also did it with a condition. She had to start uh, teaching um, entry-level uh, science to undergraduates, and, um, and that experience uh, uh, turned out to be pretty traumatic because Yale was still a very prep school kind of place with very... 
um, old-fashioned notions about people, and Grace was not a traditional person in any way. She dressed in a jacket and tie, um, uh, a fedora. Um, she had a gravelly kind of English accent, and students in that first class ridiculed her. They heckled her from the back of the room, and um, so you can imagine how painful that must have been, and she retired the following year and, and moved on with her National Science Foundation grant to another college. Oh. Yeah, that those those poignant stories, and I I think, I, well, I'm glad you brought them up, uh, and I'm and I'm glad we can learn about uh, uh, learn about these women and the struggles they had, and the, because they had these struggles, some of us, well, we think we had it a little tough. We certainly didn't have it that tough, so that we can continue to you know, open doors because of of others that came before us. So thank you for memorializing some of those uh, stories as well. Um, but so we're in our final segment, uh, and I know you've got uh, at least one or two uh, you know other characters that you you. I am sure you've got a story that, you know, you continue to share with friends and colleagues, uh, just one that you just, you know, can't, can't leave. Can you share, share one of those yeah. with us? Sure. There was a character that I'd never, also never heard of, and I don't think many people have, named John Bell Hatcher. This was in the 1880s. He came to Yale because he had been paying his way through college elsewhere, working as a coal miner, and in the course of, of, of his, his work, he found paleontological specimens, became intrigued by them, and he knew that, that um, O.C. Marsh was at Yale, and O.C. Marsh was the greatest paleontologist of the 19th century, and so he, he came to Yale to finish his undergraduate education, and then after graduating, he went into the field to work for O.C. Marsh, but he wasn't your traditional kind of uh, field worker. He was... Uh, in the photograph that, that I have of him in the book, he, he looks like Dudley Do-Right. He's got a 10-gallon a hat, and he's got this very uh, poker face, which is um, uh, actually quite uh, fitting because he was a, a genius at poker. Um, and he traveled around these pioneer western towns, um, getting to know people and playing poker with them. And because O.C. Marsh paid people poorly and, and late, um, <laughs> Uh, 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 John Bell Hatcher learned to pay for his science largely with his poker winnings. And at one point, he was in um, in Wyoming and chatting with the locals, playing poker with them, taking their money, no doubt. When he heard about um, what um, what uh, one of the cowboys described as uh, this uh, this enormous head sticking out midway of a bank on one side of a deep dry gulch and with horns as long as hoe handles and eye holes as big as your hat. And he went out to investigate, and um, he took a specimen of, of a horn back to, uh, to New Haven for the winter, and O.C. Marsh studied it, decided that it was some sort of ancient monstrous uh, bison, and described it as such, but over the course of the winter had second thoughts, and so the following spring he, he harried um, uh, John uh, Bell Hatcher to get out into the field, Hatcher went um, in March or April, three weeks after his um, his wife had just lost their first child, um, and he went out into the field, found the specimen, retrieved it, sent it back to New Haven in very short order, and it, it turned out to be not a bison, but triceratops, um, and it was the first of the great ceratopsians that, um, that we all know and love now. Um, so... Um, 
the, the thing about Hatcher that intrigued me was, first of all, his independence and his self-confidence. Um, so he was going out into these areas and, and single-handedly at one point collecting a specimen that weighed a thousand pounds using uh, various kinds of pulleys and derricks and things that he constructed. And later with crews, he would collect specimens that weighed as much as 6,000 pounds. And then he had to carry them on wagons back to the rail depot over rough country, um, you know, with very limited resources, often in terrible weather. And, um, and he did this brilliantly, and he sent um, amazing specimens back to Yale. And because um, he was uh, funded not just by um, Marsh, but by a, a USGS grant, uh, those specimens became some of the prizes of the Peabody, of course, but also of the U.S. National Museum in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, so uh, Hatcher made a, a great contribution that way. And he was also, you know, apart from doing the big stuff and, and gathering these specimens that nobody else could have extracted intact, um, he also was clever about the small stuff. So he had to collect uh, microfossils from ancient rodents and so on little teeth. And he realized after a bit that harvester ants, which are horrible, painful, stinging ants, uh, that, that, that they used to, um, that they gather up all kinds of, of small objects and bring them back to the nest. And that among these small objects were lots of rodent teeth. In one case, he got 300 of them from a single um, harvester ant nest. And, and then he hit on the better idea of carrying harvester ants with them and planting them in areas where he wanted to collect and then coming back a year or two later to see what they had collected. And, and he gathered up more microfossils that way. From one nest, he got, I think, 27 of them. So this guy was a genius. He was also incredibly, um, oh, uh, he, 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 he had incredible stamina and, and withstood horrible conditions. So at one point, he was working in, in Patagonia, and he had to travel 125 miles in winter across Patagonia on horseback by himself because he wanted to check that some specimens he had collected were, were um, properly packed. He didn't really have to do this, but he, he, he was that, it was that important to him that he, that he did it. And partway across, um, camping alone, he, he, he was working with his horse, adjusting something about the bit of the bridle, and um, the horse jerked its head, and a sharp, Part of the of the, um, the 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 bit caught him on the scalp and laid his scalp halfway across his skull, and um, and and he couldn't do anything except put it back on and uh, wrap a hand, handkerchief around it, pull a stetson back onto his head, and then continue on um, uh, for night after night after night, sleeping on the ground. An amazing character. Yes, and thank goodness it was cold and the blood could coagulate. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, one of those absolutely happy accidents. Well, I don't know if some of these stories will encourage people to uh, engage in field work or discourage them. Uh, but again, I think that it's... it's um, it, well, they're, they're great stories. But one thing, just... Uh, um, we're almost out of time, but just how do you how do you see that the story of the Peabody Museum has? Uh, you know, what's the takeaway with the roles that museum can play in science education? 
Well, so one nice thing about the Peabody is that in 1925, when the Scopes trial was going on, and when evolution, it was becoming illegal to teach evolution in many places, Yale completely uh, reorganized the Peabody Museum collection on lines of evolution. That is, it deliberately set out to teach what was being made illegal to teach elsewhere. And it also made an effort to bring in school children, lots of school children, on a steady basis to make sure that they understood the reality of science. So I think the great lesson of the Peabody and of museums everywhere is they've got the science, they've got the raw material, they need to explain it even in an atmosphere where people don't want to talk about climate change, don't want to talk about extinction of species, don't want to talk about a lot of really inconvenient subjects that we need um, to know about, and, and the place to find out is in a museum. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I couldn't have said it better. And with that, uh, Richard, I want to thank you for being on the show today. This was absolutely delightful. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate it. And uh, make sure to pick up a copy of House of Lost Worlds by Richard Conniff, uh, Yale University Press. It is a fabulous read. Uh, and so with that, I will bid you do. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode of Museum Life. Thank you for listening and supporting the show as you all do. Uh, I'll see you next week. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.